0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose, and I'm not alone today. We're not. No, we're very happy to have Lynn
1: Moretti with us, who's the Chief Claims Officer for Europe for Amtrust. Welcome, Lynn. How are you?
2: I am great. It's wonderful to be here.
0: No, we're, we're thanks for joining us. We're super excited about this one, Is as only in reinsurance nerds can get excited about something, um, because... Talking about claims has been one of the most often requested topics from like our listeners. So we brought you here to sort of unload all of your industry insight and information.
2: (laughs) Well, well, claims is the most exciting part of insurance. Yeah. I mean, it really is the promise that we sell, right? Yeah. And so I am very passionate. You might need to take me off my soapbox about claims (laughs) from time to time, but uh, happy to talk about claims. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Well, we'll start with how you sort of landed in the space, like the journey to sort of the not only the industry itself, but sort of the claims side of this space. And then we'll dive into all manner of stories and anecdotes, I'm sure.
2: Well, as everyone in insurance, we all grew up with insurance action heroes and want to grow up (laughs) and be in insurance. Um, My start was with uh, I'm a litigator in the US, Mm -hmm. and uh, I ended up defending architects and engineers. Um, and attorneys, and was exposed to a coverage insurance case, mm-hmm. which I actually found fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so I was, you know, drawn to c- the coverage side of the industry, and uh, procured a position within a large carrier in the U.S. Uh, advising on environmental long tail claims, asbestos, silica pollution, yeah. sort of the yeah. everything that can kill you department that we try to put an exclusion on today. Yeah. And I was advising the claims professionals and really finding it fascinating what they did Mm. and how they moved around the company. And coming from a law firm to an insurance company, you realize while an insurance company is producing a legal document, they're not in the practice of law. Mm. And I wanted to be more on the business side of um, the industry and eventually uh, moved over to a claims management position and manage claims throughout the U.S., uh, various lines um, within the commercial Mm -hmm. side. Did not do too much on the consumer side, except a little bit of homeowner's pollution, Mm -hmm. which is always fun. Mm -hmm. And then um, had this opportunity to come over to London a year ago and now serve as chief claims officer for our London uh, office, which is very exciting and, and very different from the lines of business and the way we manage claims. Absolutely,
1: That's super exciting, and and yeah, you must have seen some things in your time with those sorts of topics, and uh, yeah, the, the real, societally important part of what we do, I guess, in many ways as well, mm. in terms of, yeah, paying for real.
2: Well, I think on two two aspects, you're dealing with people that are in crisis. Mm-hmm. Something happened, whether it was personal, you know, their loved one was in a, in an accident, mm. they were in an accident. Or they lost some personal property. There was a fire. Mm-hmm. Their automotive, uh, their mm-hmm. you know, vehicle is damaged. Something has happened that they didn't want to have happen, yeah. but they have, you know, the insurance company, the carrier, to um, come step in with that risk as designed. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, I think, an aspect that people forget. Mm-hmm. The claims professionals really have to show that empathy yeah. side mm-hmm. and gain the trust and the respect of the claimant. We see it day in and day out. Sometimes it's a little, you get a little hardened to it. Uh, But this is probably the only claim that this entity or person might have. Mm -hmm. And it could be very devastating. Yeah.
0: What have you seen? So you mentioned sort of the breadth of classes and and areas that you've written before. Have you seen, is, is the complexity of a claim vary quite a lot? Obviously you have something relatively simple like a motor where it's like, obviously a fender bender or something and that's being repaired versus the complexity of something like silica or asbestosis or like how have you seen the various classes and the complexity of sort of one receiving the claims and how you begin to evaluate the payouts and similar
2: well, I think the different lines have their own complexities. Mm-hmm. So you can take a look and say, okay, warranty. You have your cell phone and the glass is cracked. Pretty yeah. simple. Right. But you could also have a warranty claim on a large farm equipment. Um, you know, some machinery, you have to get some experts in, what's the repair cost there, what's the time down for, you know, that farmer, you know, that that user of the machinery and how does that work? Are there third parties that are involved? Was it a manufacturing defect? Mm. Um, so we see that a lot on the property side. So a first party property claim, there's a fire, there's a leak, you respond to that. But who actually caused that? Mm. And is that you know, a third-party recovery? Is there a subrogation action yeah. and the like? And then keeping the claimant involved uh, because, again, they're the one that their business is you know, not up and running because some yeah. vehicle ran into their building. Yeah. You know, how do you get them back up on their yeah. feet as quickly as possible, but yet make sure that you are appropriately evaluating the claim, getting the right experts involved if needed, and not overpaying because the flip side of that is premium is impacted mm-hmm. and then you're not doing any of the consumers the service that you you know are intended to do yeah
1: yeah so, so how does it work at like a, a really high level I guess so you've got these customers of all different shapes and sizes who you know have bought into the the marketing of a very big you know insurance brand that, that says you can trust us to be here when you need us and then something actually does happen like you described where where do they go on the journey into uh, a claim, and and how do you those routes vary depending on you know where it might go from there?
2: Well, you know, initially a claim is reported.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sometimes it's timely, sometimes it's not timely, mm-hmm. so that may pose some challenges as to can you properly investigate that claim? You know, for, it all starts with the policy. Is it covered? Mm-hmm. And one of the claims that I was um, when I mentioned how I got into insurance coverage. Uh, the insurer we were um, hired to defend the claim for um, had issued a professional indemnity policy to a a lawyer solicitor Mm -hmm. who happened to have a side gig of running a Ponzi scheme Mm -hmm. on uh, some land sales. And uh, the difficulty was it was not within his scope of legal services. Mm -hmm. And so first and foremost, is the claim covered by the policy? Yeah. And that's where you have to start. And as sad as it might be, and there were 30 or so clients of his that engaged in the scheme, that it really wasn't covered. Yeah. Now, did did we want a court to decide whether it was covered or not? There was a resolution there. Mm. However, um, you couldn't be swayed by the emotions of those claimants. Yeah. It really comes down to it's a contract, and then how do you explain that contract? Mm. I've been in many conversations with current customers where you're saying, yeah, that's what you want out of the policy. That's not what you bought, Mm -hmm. and this is why. Now, you can get me there if certain evidence is developed, Mm -hmm. but if not, this is a claim that's not covered. It will be denied, and that is the position. So you have to be upfront about what's covered, what's not covered. Um, It -hmm. does come back to it is a basic contract. Um, And then once you determine that there there may be coverage and the investigation continues, Mm -hmm. what is the complexity? Do you need experts to help you understand Mm -hmm. what the claim is, what the evaluation is? Mm -hmm. Uh, There really is an alignment, I believe, between a carrier and a claimant because um, they always say, you know, claims are not like fine wine. They don't age well. I would say it's more like milk in a hot summer sun. Yeah. Well. Um, they tend to get worse. Mm. And um, not only because the facts develop in a way, uh, but because people get stuck in their positions. Mm. Yeah. So it just becomes more expensive to resolve. And the sooner you can get something done, if you have the right information, usually it's mm. the best.
1: Mm. Yeah, I remember something just popped into my head from a long time ago, the sort of sue and labor kind of clauses in contracts where you can try and stop a loss happening. But I guess even in the absence of that, it's in everyone's interest to minimize the loss as soon as you can, Mm -hmm. I guess.
2: Well, I did speak at a conference once and said that the only folks that are interested in a long drawn out litigation claim are usually the defense lawyers. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) so. Interesting Plaintiffs'
2: goal. lawyers Interesting. want it done fast. <laughs> yeah, uh, mm-hmm. for their uh, contingency. Claimants mm-hmm. want their money, and carriers want to resolve the claim and yeah. move on to the next one. Yeah.
0: When when claims are denied, is do would they oftentimes be? So would there be like countersuits or a lawsuit against their? Or that does that is over a certain size? Is that something that happens frequently, or is it sort of a? Nope. This is what the the first pass of legal sort of review has determined. This isn't going to be covered. And people accept Depending that?
2: Depending on where you are, mm. there may be a regulatory um, avenue. So a jurisdiction, the FOSS, if someone is you know disagreeing with it, declinature. Mm-hmm. Um Typically what happens though is there's going to be a little bit of a back and forth. A, a carrier will deny, an insured will say no this for these reasons, and there may mm-hmm. be just a, a resolution. Um, Claims by or against a policyholder are difficult to um, engage upon. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, if the clause is very specific and particular, this happened a lot with business interruption during COVID, Mm -hmm. right, depending on the language, number of occurrences, Mm -hmm. uh, how many limits are involved. Those become very important to the carrier and how they price the product. And it could really... um, it, it, it may just be more than just one claim that's at, at stake. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's where the industry gets, it gets really complicated, right? Is the wording for sort of business interruption as an example, like there's all these sort of assumed or predicted ways business interruption will happen. Um, none of which was sort of cons- <laughs> considered like global pandemic in which most countries around the world shut down entirely. Right, And so policies that were being sort of, um, claims made against them, they were going into wording that was very unclear as to how it would respond in this exact situation. And that's what makes it a really nuanced. Do you, within kind of maybe to Ben's, following up from Ben's question, are there other legal like colleagues that sit beneath you and in the claims team? Or how does the sort of structure of a claims organization work?
2: Well, it depends on the company. Mm-hmm. So with prior carriers, I was that insurance coverage advisor. So I would advise the claims folks whether something was covered or not. If we decided to litigate, I would work with our outside counsel for that litigation, litigated matter and, and be part of that, that resolution. Some folks, some companies completely go outside for that advice and that litigation, um, you know, and others have it in totally in-house. Um, but, you know, you talk about the wording. I mean, one... On, maybe it's an infamous example that I had. Um, it was a, a U.S. federal case involving pollution, homeowners mm-hmm. pollution case. Mm-hmm. And the pollution exclusion in the homeowners policy said something along the lines of, you know, pollutant is not pollution is not covered, such as, and it had a number of enumerated examples. Mm-hmm. Home heating oil was not one of the enumerated examples. And the federal judge determined that because it was not in there, yeah. it was not a pollutant.
1: It's an or terrace or something.
2: And so, you know, yeah. I wanted to take some home heating oil and pour it on the federal judge's property and mm. say, so now, what do you think? Is it a pollutant or not? Yeah. Obviously, that wouldn't fly. But it yeah. it really does turn on the jurisdiction, yep. the language, and then the ultimate ramifications.
0: Yeah. yeah very very interesting and then how close this is as a reinsurance podcast how how close do, do you get then to the reinsurance claims process because as our listeners will know like the the claims that accrue to an insurance book may or may not then accrue to the reinsurance purchase of that seed or the, of that insurer how does that transition through like when you're when you're sort of managing claims that are coming through are you filing them somewhere that you can link them up to what policies they might be either accruing to in a sort of aggregate policy or um, building towards in a cap policy. How does that kind of work, that relationship?
2: Well, so the claims department is typically, you know, separate and distinct from the reinsurance mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. You know, and our job within claims is to alert our, our reinsured partners within the company that a claim may be uh, subject to reinsurance, mm-hmm. whether as a single claim mm-hmm. or as an in an aggregation, let's say a property catastrophe, mm-hmm. hurricanes, things and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, what's important from a claims perspective is to focus on the claim itself and not the noise around it as mm-hmm. to who, where the risk shifts and mm-hmm. how. I think one of the, the biggest um, differences I have seen in my career is when the business is in runoff, long tail. And your reinsurance partner for that business may not be your current reinsurance partner. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the language, uh, the is the the language of the reinsurance contract um, being interpreted as everyone expected mm-hmm. in this current circumstance, the way this loss you know occurred. And I saw that mostly when I was involved with asbestos yeah. claims and the number of occurrences and what contracts. Mm-hmm or back of the envelope, back of the napkin said back in the 60s and yeah. 70s uh, when you were looking at the policies that were being issued then, the reinsurance uh, agreements that were, were being um, entered into, and then ultimately what would an arbitration say uh, yeah. with that language? Yeah.
0: I think that sort of speaks to why we've we've always talked about on the podcast the importance of the relationships between insurers and their reinsurance partners and things and why I think the industry thinks about it in that way is if you've been in the industry for decades like there are experiences you have of like we brought them in as a new re or they brought you know cheaper capacity or what have you but over the course of a number of years legacy claims have come through and there's been a lot of friction there and it's easy to look back and go it's not worth it we should read we're better off with our long term like trusted partners because if we have the option, we know that they're they're around and they see a, a very big picture of our relationship rather than that one program we wrote right. 18 years ago, which we don't really feel like Though dealing with anymore.
2: I think it's really important that again, if you focus on what what's the the right thing to do? What's the right way to handle a claim and not mm-hmm. think about that noise? Mm-hmm. And we have a, a situation right now where we're really managing our book in a very different way, much more contained, and I, I, you know, claims that we were putting our reinsurers on notice, we were resolving for below the threshold. Mm-hmm. And I think what that shows is that good faith approach, maybe we're not in a business relationship today, but we might be in a business relationship tomorrow. And when you show that that is how you a- a- approach your business, uh, Long, te- long term, it's just going to be good for for the carrier, mm-hmm. and you know if the reinsurer benefits from that, great. You know, that, yeah. that's how it should be.
0: Yeah. Well, it's that relationship, as you said, goes both ways. It's are you paying reinsurance premiums our time? Are you reducing your losses as much as possible? That the reinsurer would be assuming, right? They're right. recognizing good faith on your side, which gives them the comfort of re- reciprocating that back. Mm-hmm in a, a more challenging claim environment or on a more challenging claim, so exactly. that makes complete sense.
2: I think one thing that people don't realize, and I alluded to this a little bit at the beginning, is how difficult it is for, for a claim professional day in and day out. Mm. Um, you know, They are dealing with someone's crisis, yeah. small or big, every day. Every time a claim is reported, we may have put it in the pricing, it may be within expectations, but it's still disruption to mm-hmm. someone's mm-hmm. life and um, especially in the liability space that gets very uh, difficult. yeah uh, you know, death, death claims are, are really difficult and those folks deal with that on the front line.
0: yeah well I think it's a really interesting one um, because I, I completely agree with you and I think the industry is the industry has always struggled to some degree with fraud. But the really hard thing is you don't want to have that so much in the claimed person's mind because when people call with call in with or report like authentic claims, you cannot have that person they're talking to their first point of thought being like, maybe they're making this up. Like, cause it, it, So you have to have it where you treat everything as absolutely valid to start and then only as, as you kind of go through the processing of it do you begin to entertain this might be fraudulent or similar because… That getting that calibration wrong erodes trust in the consumer's confidence in how the industry works a lot.
2: Right. You know, there's claim magnification, and that happens. And then there's fraud. Mm-hmm. And so I try to separate the two claim magnification, um, you're not quite sure if it's supported or unsupported. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe people think that's how you negotiate, or maybe they may believe that is part of their claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we will see certain aspects of that. Let's say PTSD mm-hmm. is something a claim person may question. Is it real? Mm-hmm. Um, we had one claim in my experience uh, where there was a, a gas explosion and a woman was claiming PTSD. Our claims professional flew across the country in a very rural area mm-hmm. to, be, to meet her in person to try to resolve that claim. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, oh, you know, overcome with the care that was shown to her. And what he learned was right before the explosion, she recalled her children being in the kitchen with her. Mm -hmm. Now, the kids were fine. They had run out of the house, but she didn't know that when she woke up. And so he could identify, he could be with her, he understood what her pain was, and he could evaluate that claim. And it resolved right then and there, Yeah, which... You know, for the insurance company, um, we paid her far- fairly, mm-hmm. paid her timely, and we avoided some of the expense if that claim had stayed open. Mm-hmm. Conversely, uh, we had a claim where um, a woman had fallen down the stairs, claimed um, some injuries to her legs, and then all of a sudden a back injury. Mm-hmm. Well, we found a um, photo of her riding a mechanical bull, <laughs> and the... Uh, Claims professional found the bar. Mm-hmm. The, the photo mm-hmm. was undated. Yeah. Found the, the bar where it was. Or there, there were so many bars in the area that had a mechanical bull. Narrowed mm-hmm. it down, and you have to f- sign a waiver.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he through the waiver was able to date the photo as post fall. Yeah. Yeah. And that resolved for what we had originally valued at. Yeah. And so we were able to take that magnification. Let's say that fraud element out of it yeah um, so you have to be mindful it's all about that good investigation yeah and on that mm-hmm. claim the time was worth spent yeah yeah doing a, a longer investigation mm-hmm. rather than speed to resolution yeah
1: how, how many of these insights that you must find actually looking at individual claims all of the time I make it back to the the underwriting teams and the wording teams how much of has insurance evolved I guess thanks to The claims experience. There's
2: a very tight connection between claims and underwriting. Mm -hmm. Uh, My practice has been to always involve underwriting in a lot of the decisions, or at least for them to see the decisions Mm -hmm. from a reserving perspective so they can see why language in the policy did not perhaps act in the way that they they expected, or that Mm -hmm. new business um, did not allow them to go after a third party because they issued a rap policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they didn't really understand that that wrap policy would, you know bar third party recoveries from, mm-hmm. let's say, ancillary entities that you know just wasn't in their their mindset when they wrote the policy. So you always need to to have that feedback loop. Uh, we do that on a monthly basis, uh, definitely on a quarterly basis mm-hmm. on some of the larger issues. And then sometimes you have like a summit on here's a new product, here are all the endorsements, the exclusions. This is how the claims have lined up over the last year. Mm-hmm. That had a I, I personally ran one of those with respect to fracking at mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. because uh, we were getting a lot of claims with just trunk, trucking companies, and you know you ended up they were part of the chain, mm-hmm. and that was not really what underwriting had yeah. understood um, the risk to be. Yeah. So y- you need to have that feedback loop, and underwriting needs to understand that claims is doing a difficult job. And is not trying to um, increase loss ratios. Yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely.
2: So, uh, I think it, it just helps uh, educate everybody on uh, the different obligations we all have within the company.
1: Yeah, and is the, I guess, ever more available world of data and analytics changing the way that you know claims is is impacting. The it, whole insurer, I guess.
2: I, I think again, it depends on the complexity and the, and the line of business. Yeah, and so let's say, obviously, within let's say a property context, having information about materials costs mm. and labor costs and inflation and in different jurisdictions, you can more readily get to what that evaluation mm. has should be, and whether uh, you need to involve. Additional experts just to determine it. Some of that information is now available to us. We can see whether there is just straight through processing on some claims, yep. and that may be, you know, again for the right claim that works. Mm-hmm. You don't also don't want to overemphasize the AI, the technology, mm-hmm. because it could lead you to uh, improper results. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's that constructive use of technology, constructive use of, of information. Mm. I think it's very important to use the data to, to manage at a macro level, and that will help you on the micro level. Yeah. But you mm. need to make sure you understand that uh, what may look like a relationship may not be a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
0: And I think it, it can certainly play a role in well, as well as in establishing sort of the starting point before the claim was made, right? Like. Mm. What was the condition or quality of the home? What was the, you know, state, this sort of stability of the structure beforehand, and and not to treating it as a, like, like I think evaluating kind of what the 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 amount of the loss might be if you know the sort of state of play earlier, it might not be. Or is, I think it's like the, like property it, or something. I,
2: I, I was just going to use a property example, and let's just take a, a hurricane uh, or something that we have forecast. Yeah, the mm-hmm. snowstorms that are that happen or the freeze claims. And when you know that something is on the precipice mm-hmm. and you understand where your policies are and maybe some agents or brokers that are have a lot of um, customers in that area, that technology, that, that information, if you reach out ahead of time and you encourage those customers to reach out and this is how you report a claim, this is how, if you have pipe bursts because of cold mm. weather, mitigate. Here's some some helpful hints. And the timing of the claim, I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes claims are reported late. Well, mm. if someone has reported a, a property claim late, and then maybe you now have mold, you have other types of yeah. wetness that mm. you know, it beca- makes that claim that much worse. But if you get ahead of it before the occurrence happens, you may be then cutting off a lot of exposure because of course. they are reminded of their the, the policy and, and what they can and, and, and should be doing. Yeah.
0: And how do you see, and this might be more contentious, but the relationship with um, like various governing bodies around how they allow you to sort of hand off the ability to make the claim. If you look at Florida, for example, where the claimant can hand over the the ability to to make the claim out to third parties and those people are making like pressing it for it on their behalf or they know how to game the system maybe a bit like cuz it's a really interesting one because at its sort of structural core it's very simple there's a person who has an item or a business and then there's an insurance policy in place and a claim is needed but when you get into the reality of the how the industry works there's loads of people and third parties that sort of get involved throughout this chain that can add complexity and certainly cost downstream. Like how do you see that relationship evolving and does it change where you choose to write business if this relationship with the underwriters is, is so important?
2: Well, I think from a claims perspective, you're always wanting to inform underwriters about the claim landscape and what is happening when a claim happens mm. and whether there are these cottage industries that are coming together, whether there are court decisions that are Um, interpreting an exclusion differently or a non-cumulation of limits in a way that, again, is not within the expectations of Mm. of the underwriting team. The issues with bad faith, with alignments, I think that just people understand that those are just difficult jurisdictions. Mm. And that can be, um, there is the um, what is the uh, there's a, a treatise on the you know the, the worst jurisdictions you know in the U S and I'm mm. sure they're similar uh, elsewhere in the world mm. but probably we you know, the U S corners the market on hellholes yeah the hellhole jurisdiction report um, and you know some of that just comes with the territory if you're going to get into that business mm-hmm. you're just going to need to know that uh, otherwise you you just you know diversify and mm. um, you may need to pick up stakes. Yeah. because the plaintiff's bar knows how to back carriers into bad faith.
1: Yeah. I guess when you mentioned sort of this vicariousness or stepping into the shoes sort of thing, the, from the lawyer's perspective, I guess there are some interesting mechanisms available to insurers as well around subrogation, for example. And, and then salvage is another concept as well that listeners might not be familiar with. Do, do you engage much in that in the sort of specialty world or?
2: Well, I think subrogation is critical. Right? Mm-hmm. You need to understand, is there another party, is there another entity mm-hmm. that should be paying for all or some of what your company just paid for? Mm-hmm. Uh, what I have found and what we're, we're tackling is when you involve third-party administrators, are they similarly encouraged to look for those opportunities mm-hmm. to shift risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most carriers understand if they're going to you know, look for third parties. They're also going to be on the other side of it. So I think there's just a give and take yeah. that people understand. Uh, that companies understand, especially let's say in construction defect, everyone gets pulled in. Yeah, There, you know liability claims, uh, especially the property claims. Uh, I I think that um, sorry, I just need to. It was subrogation. What was and that? then salvage was my other sort of. Yeah, salvage is uh, a critical part of any type of contents or, mm-hmm. or property claim, um, warranty claim. You know, what are we doing with that? Who are we using as our salvage, mm-hmm. you know, partners? Mm-hmm. Um, and is that part of the uh, the equation? Mm-hmm. But that's a, usually a separate um, endeavor. But really, you need to ha- in, and and with the specific lines of business, what are your areas for that third party recovery? It might be salvage. It might be actually a a separate entity. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might be litigation, or it may be some type of arbitration uh, within the industry that that line of business arises out of.
0: Yeah. Super interesting. What do you, if we sort of like put the, take the crystal ball out, where do you see the role of claims and how it operates over the next few years? Obviously, we talked about the importance that data might have, but it's still central to what we sort of do as an industry, but there's always a push towards helping mitigate further and reducing the amount of claims that insureds get exposed to and hopefully therefore reducing the sort of stress of those moments, as you said. But like, how do you see the, the way we do this as an industry evolving? What are we sort of working towards?
2: I think we're working towards really understanding that severity model within a line of business. So with straight-through processing, which claims can... Just be resolved with mm-hmm. minimal information, uh, because we know that you know, there's not a fraud element. Um, the you know, the investigation is part of the claim itself, and using technology for more of a self service model mm-hmm. with certain types of claims, mm-hmm. certain levels of claims. I think the difficulty comes in when the complexity increases, and the expectation is well, we'll see something along those lines along that complexity continuum. And that's where uh, some of the information can be informative, but I think the human element and the human uh, mm. understanding of what the valuation is and what the resolution approach is is critical at least in the next couple of years. yeah interesting.
1: yeah no, I had an interesting one the other day where one of the, I can't remember if it was my first claim or if it was one of very few insurance claims I've ever actually you know gone through and I, I bought a ticket to a concert. Ultimately, we couldn't attend because my wife had COVID. And the claims process sort of hung on the fact that these concert tickets I had, you could tell whether they'd been used or not mm. based on the individual uniqueness of my ticket. And so they said, yeah, we just have to get proof from the concert organizers or the ticket company that your ticket wasn't used and then you're good to go. That's basically right. all we need. Yeah, uh, So it was very interesting to see how that data was paired up for kind of, as you said, you know, very, very straightforward processing because right. either this ticket was used or it was not.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's like, um, what's the other tr- thing it does the trigger in the same way? Yeah, like a parametric. Like thing. a parametric. Right. Yeah, we should like probably a, talk about parametric, uh, actually.
1: What, yeah. what are your yeah. thoughts
2: on parametric? I, I'm intrigued by it. I have not yet been exposed to mm. it within any of the, the companies I've worked with. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that, that is an avenue mm. for, again, Basically straight through processing. Like, yeah. you know, an event happens. Yep.
0: Then, well, and and that's sort of again we we talk, we started started this conversation talking about the importance of claims and the process being smooth and those claimants feeling made whole, etc. The more in some ways we can get out of our way, like automate the, some of those processes, where it's like, here's this thing I had to have happen. We can check it through, and then money's in your bank in hours. Like that just reiterates the role that the product plays for people, and there will always be super complex gray area nuance that will always have people, you know, with their hands on that. But the more we can sort of increase the amount we can automate and triage without so much intervention, the better we can make that product for people.
2: Right. And, and be creating that level of analytical approach within a claims professional's obligations. So maybe on the lower severity, mm. that person could really look at the data and understand where it's taking them. And which claims maybe aren't straight through processing, but are low touch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think really the most critical area for claims and probably across insurance is our future talent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it being attractive to the next generation mm-hmm. of, of employees. Yeah. Um, as a lawyer, I've seen that a claims professional is going to negotiate more mm. matters than any lawyer throughout mm-hmm. their career. So if you have somebody who is interested in conflict resolution has uh, an idea for empathy mm-hmm. and has some interest in technology mm. i I think as an industry we probably are not um, coming across mm. as a such a creative uh, future for for so many people mm. and it, it really it, it takes all types of backgrounds uh, to create a strong claims team yeah.
1: So I think there really is a a case of sort of unsung heroes with with claims departments across the industry, right? They're not particularly prominent when you come into the industry with it being a sort of after-the-fact product, you know, but it it really is where the action happens. So I think, yeah, truly... We're uh, outflow. No one wants to know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully through through this podcast episode and other conversations, more and more people will hear Mm. about the excitement and the... uh, the importance, as well, of of claims.
2: I it? told you, I, I can get on my soapbox about <laughs> <importance> <laughs> claims professionals. Hopefully, that came through. Yeah, uh, it's a very uh, proud bunch, uh, very engaged. Mm. Uh, they really care about getting to the right outcome. Yeah, and uh, like I said, they usually are dealing with you know something that is of crisis. Yeah, uh, for the person on the other end of mm. the phone.
0: Have you seen much of a difference between? Um, your sort of most of your career in the U.S. and working with U.S. markets and and claimants versus now your time in in London, is is does the process look similar? Or the way they present claim is there, is there any sort of fundamental differences that you've seen so far?
2: Well, the basics of a claim are the same, no matter yeah. the line, no matter the complexity. Claim comes in, you look at coverage, mm-hmm. you evaluate t- type of a investigation that you need. What what points of information are you missing to resolve the claim? Yeah, and then what's the evaluation and then what's your resolution strategy and then close down the claim. Yeah. That's, those are the, the, that's the process of a claim.
0: Yeah.
2: However, I think uh, what I've, I have found here and, and maybe it's more my company than, than elsewhere uh, is the, the use of third party administrators. Mm-hmm. And so in a way I feel we're almost sitting in an oversight position like a reinsurer. We have delegated the authority for the claims handling and you're be basing your understanding of the claim volume within delegated authority based on a board route. Yeah. So very limited information, uh, not the type of data mining that you could do if mm-hmm. everything was in your own claim system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then anything above delegated authority we're, we're, we're handling directly. Yeah. Uh, so that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always managed claims groups and or advised claims groups. That were directly managing the claims, and so it it is a little bit different in that way. Um, It's still the same process. It's still the same uh, review from Mm -hmm. an audit perspective, and you still are looking at the same. I would you know the key performance metrics that matter to me, Mm -hmm. and I've always described it more as a Rubik's cube. You don't ever want to run to one metric. You have to solve the whole cube. Yeah, and so yes, cycle time I can get down. But I'll just be overpaying. Mm, yeah, you know, expense to loss ratios. Well, you know, if I increase my loss, my expense ratio goes down, right? So mm-hmm. that's not you know, you're
1: rubbing pizza to people, right? Kind of thing.
2: So you know, what is your your total outcome, mm. and what's your overhead, and how are you, you getting there? So um, that's that's a big piece is making sure that you're measuring the right things, looking at the age of the claims. Um, and you know industry benchmarks, those are the types of things that you have to just keep all in alignment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. can't run to one solution. Yeah. yeah.
0: You mentioned before um, at a high level is more, more on the topic of jurisdictions, but this idea that if, if a certain jurisdiction is too difficult, you might just choose to, to pull out of that jurisdiction or similar. How much does the company look at maybe underperforming books or classes going, should we stop writing this product in its entirety, or is is that a conversation that you get involved with? Or the data your team sends internally is that driving some of those company wide decisions?
2: Well, they're always going to look to claims mm. and see what we're seeing, mm. how those decisions get made. Um, I've not, you know, fully uh, educated myself on that. Yeah. I do just keep getting drawn towards. Yeah.
0: You're not, pitch, you're not pitching. We should get out of this thing right now. Uh,
2: well, I th- I think more from uh, you know, why did we write this? Or we need an exclusion if you're going to continue yeah. to write this. Is sure. that market, you know, it, does that take you out of the market if you're, you know, yeah. or, you know, your expectations need to change.
0: Mm-hmm. If
2: you're going to write, and I use this example a lot and, and maybe the law has changed, but if you're going to insure dry cleaners in Indiana, mm-hmm. you can put the pollution exclusion all over the place on that. And at the time I was giving advice, it was not recognized. Mm -hmm. It was against public policy. So insure those folks, but at our own peril. Yeah. So, you know, that just goes into that risk matrix and the appetite that the company has.
0: Yeah. When you get this really interesting sense of the feedback loop that this industry has, right, where you have um, consumers coming to insurers looking for protection on a thing and then, over a while, you get claims coming through on those policies, and then over you know f- more time, you get an indication as profitability of a book of business, and then that will guide underwriting principles and underlying pricing. And you you get to see the interconnectedness of of these of how claims works alongside policy and introduction of inclu- in- inclusion and exclusions, um, all sort of guiding kind of what exists to a consumer when they go out to buy an insurance policy.
2: Well, and When you think about the lines of business, the shorter tails, you're going to have that feedback loop that much faster. But I think where the problems come in, the inherent issues, let's just take asbestos for example, right? Yeah, those policies look great, right? And then over time, the long tail nature Mm -hmm. of some of our exposures really then say, oh, I wish we had known that 30 years ago Uh, or 10 years ago, let's say on a decennial uh, structural defect Construction mm. defect type policy, uh, the RAP policies I mentioned mm. before, mm. you know, those were, you know, dealt with a, a lot of those in New York. And uh, we had New York labor law, falls from scaffolding, uh, different types of, you know, workers' compensation issues. And there was nobody to go back after because we insured yeah. everyone on the project.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I, I guess it would make sense to have a, claims folks involved in new product innovation as well, you know, working out this is the first time we've ever insured this thing. Where do we start?
2: Well, and I think that's when, when companies are getting involved in new lines, take a look at, well, who will be handling the claims? Hmm. Because if you want to get involved in medical malpractice and you have a property team, how are you going to buy the expertise? Yeah. Where are you going to learn about how those claims really should be managed? Do you have that expertise? Not just on the underwriting side, Hmm but on the, uh, the claims side. Yeah. And can you trust that third party if you're going to, to buy or borrow, mm-hmm. uh, and not build that expertise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: A super, super fascinating air Hitler Thank you so much for spending some time with us and helping us unpack this for the listeners. So Thank really you for
2: it. shining the light on claims. Yeah. I appreciate the spotlight uh, <laughs> for all those claims professionals toiling in the back rooms. Yeah.
0: you're you're you're, you're, you we see you as professionals (laughs) and we appreciate you (laughs) thank you very much perfect thank you so much thanks thanks everyone